From the ACLU, this is At Liberty. I'm Molly Kaplan, your host. On Wednesday, pro-Trump loyalists stormed the Capitol in an effort to prevent Congress from certifying the Electoral College decision to elect Vice President Biden to be the next president of the United States. At the ACLU, we watched aghast like many of you at home. What we saw was a dangerous attack on American democracy. We know that we will be dealing with the consequences of the events that took place for quite some time, but we wanted to come together to respond to the moment particularly focusing on moving forward with electoral integrity and a deeper commitment to racial justice. On this special episode of At Liberty, you'll hear experts from the ACLU in conversation. Monica Hopkins, the executive director of the ACLU of the District of Columbia, who will also act as moderator. Jeffrey Robinson, ACLU's deputy legal director and director of the Trone Center for Justice and Equality. And Dale Ho, director of the ACLU's Voting Rights Project. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us. I'm Monica Hopkins. Um, Before we begin, uh, I just wanted to uh, take a moment and uh, elucidate for folks what is going on on the ground um, here in the District of Columbia. Um, These events that have happened at the Capitol for residents of the District of Columbia Um, uh, have been going on not just the taking of the Capitol, but we have seen Proud Boys and violent clashes of white supremacists in our city over the last uh, month. Um, And local activists have raised the flag, including notifying city officials of their concerns uh, for an all-out civil war coming to the District of Columbia. Um, So these are deeply disconcerting, um, and the District of Columbia is in a very precarious place because we do not have statehood. Uh, Our National Guard is under uh, President Trump, Um, and additionally, because we do not have statehood, uh, the president can take control of our local police department. Um, So it is within that context of the local environment that I would love to talk more also about the national environment um, and how we proceed uh, from here. So um, if I could start with with you, Jeff, you know, I sort of talked about we weren't surprised here on, on the ground about what has been happening. Can you, you know, talk a little bit. Other folks are shocked and surprised, and we heard officers say they were caught flat-footed. Should we have seen this coming? Well, if your eyes are open, you can see what's in front of you. And racism and white supremacy have been at the core of what Donald Trump has been preaching ever since he began his quest for the presidency. Let's be clear. This didn't start on Wednesday, January 6th. Back when he was running for the president, he encouraged people to attack protesters at his rally. Punch them in the face. I'll pay your legal bills. He told police officers in America, don't be too gentle when you're arresting people on the street. Don't be too gentle with them. 
And the white supremacists who marched with the neo-Nazis with Confederate flags and Nazi flags side by side, those were very nice people. Remember the Mexican that couldn't be a judge in his case because he was building a wall uh, on the Mexican border? And remember about all the animals at the southern border, how they had to be kept out because they were murderers and animal-like? And his message to the Proud Boys, stand back and stand by. I guess that message has a different meaning today, doesn't it? My point is, he knew exactly what he was talking about. He has been saying exactly the same thing since he has entered national politics. So you can tell me that you are a lot of things, but I really don't want to hear that you're surprised. Because if you're surprised, it's because you haven't been looking. The head of the Proud Boys was arrested on Saturday night with two high volume magazines in his possession. What do you think that was for? And as the president stood there Wednesday morning, ramping up that crowd and telling them, let's go, let's go, let's go, and then walk down to the Capitol, of course, like the coward he is, he retreated to the Oval Office and watched what he unleashed happen. So this is not surprising. We should have seen this coming for quite some time. And so it, it feels like there is this ramp up and we should have been able to see it coming. And, and I want to talk a little bit about the events that were actually going on inside of the Capitol on, on um, Tuesday. So Dale, is this what a congressional certification process usually looks like? <laughs> no, congressional certification processes um, for the Electoral College vote are usually pretty um, sleepy affairs. Um, you will occasionally get one or two objections. Uh, in 2016, there was one. In 2004, there was one. Um, in 2000, which where we had was probably the most contentious in recent history. You know, there were um, a lot of comments made on the floor, but we've never had anything remotely like what we saw on Wednesday, at least not in modern times. Um, that is. Um, it's, you know, I, I just want to say, you know, the ACLU obviously supports the right to protest, right? And sometimes protests can be disruptive, right? Um, but I think there is something quite different about the kind of storming of the floor of the Senate and House um, while, um, you know, our elected officials are trying to tabulate the vote count um, for the presidential election and certify the winner. Um, obviously, people have the right to have their um, voices heard. Um, I think when there is an, a, an attempt of this nature to undermine the basic machinery, machinery of our democracy, that is votes being counted and um, than a national election being certified, um, we're striking at the heart of our democracy. It's, it's an action that strikes at the heart of our democracy itself. Could you say a little bit more? I mean, you're, you're someone who's sort of like walked these halls of Congress and the Supreme Court and, and what for you, you know, like watching this and, and 
in those halls as it unfurled. What were what were your thoughts around this? I, I think a lot of like a lot of people watching. Um, I was profoundly disturbed. I can't imagine what it was like to have um, been in there um, for the folks trying to do their constitutional duty that day, and the staff. Um, trying to do their their jobs, everyone from the you know custodial staff to the um, legislative staff. Um, it, it, it must have been um, terrifying. And as we all know, a number of people lost their lives. Um, so but as an outside observer, as someone who obviously had no um, you know personal physical fear at watching it from you know hundreds of miles away on my television, um, I was shaken watching it personally. Um, you know, I do uh, everything I can in my job to protect people's right to vote. But the right to vote is not simply the act of registering or casting a ballot. It's to make sure that your votes are counted and that the results of free and fair elections are certified and result in a peaceful transfer of power. And um, what we saw yesterday was an effort to undermine all of that. And uh, one that was far more successful. Um, um, it was ultimately unsuccessful, but far more successful than I think um, I would have thought um, any such effort could have been. And it was um, eye-opening. I think to your point, Dale, one of one of the images that sort of um, struck me when we talk about ensuring that your vote is counted were the photos of the Senate staffers um, carrying the boxes of electoral votes um, was one of the one of many of the images that I think will be emblazoned um, in my my memory. Um, but but Jeff, I think you know when we're talking also, and, and we would be remiss to not also make explicit that that what we witnessed also was a visual display of white supremacy and systemic white supremacy in action. And so I wonder um, if you could sort of tell us what, what images stand out from yesterday and, and why? Well, I, I, I want to reiterate something that Dale said because I think it's really important. The ACLU has always been about the right to protest, the right to speak. This has nothing to do with protest. What happened on Wednesday was not a protest. It was a violent attempt to prevent the House of Representatives from counting electoral ballots, ballots to change the head of the government, a violent attempt to prevent that, not a breaking of a window in a downtown office building. This is something completely different. And let's think about in terms of the images, the strongest image for me is the president of the United States standing in front of this country and saying, these are the things and events that happen when a landslide victory is stripped away from patriots. This president has no connection to reality whatsoever. The dreams that he has been putting forward that have been rejected by every court, by every appellate court, by the U.S. Supreme Court, it's a fantasy. And yet he is saying, this is what happens when you take 
my fantasy of I won this election despite the fact that I got beat by millions and millions of votes. So his face saying those words is one of the strongest images that I will remember for the rest of my life. There were nooses that were erected on the Capitol grounds. There was a Confederate flag that was marched through the Capitol. Do we really still have to have a debate about what that image means, about what the Confederate flag means? And what did the president say to these people? You are special and I love you. That's what he said. And so those are the images that cling to my mind, the images of white protesters taking what appear to be selfies with, with uh, police officers who are supposed to be preventing them from entering this building. Everybody has talked about the images of what happened in June in Washington, D.C., when Black Lives Matter protesters didn't get anywhere near the Capitol, but essentially, pardon my French, got their asses kicked for simply being in the street. And I don't know how many of you saw how many people were still in the street hours after the curfew had been declared, and the police were sitting there watching them doing nothing. So the images that reflect in my mind are, it's going, it's kind of like meet the new boss, same as the old boss. We have seen this time and time and time again. The issues that are presented and the color of the skin of the people that are protesting have a major impact on how violent the police are. And let's just take for a minute, just for a minute, Dale said there were a number, there were five people that were killed whose lives were lost specifically because of this protest. That's on Donald Trump's head. What do you think America would be saying right now if a Black Lives Matter protest ended with five people dead? So what this says to me is that the, the strength of white supremacy and racism in this country is reflected by exactly what we saw happening on Wednesday. I am completely rational right now. Am I angry? Don't mistake the passion in my voice for a lack of analysis, because this is a critical event in America's history. And for us to understand exactly what it reflects is really important, because the, 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 the uh, changing of the narrative is already happening. Oh, they just got out of hand a little bit. Yeah, they broke some windows. Oh, that's too bad. It really was just spontaneous. It wasn't any big thing. That's not what was happening. And, and I think your analysis is spot on here, Jeff. Um, watching, you know, watching how much was allowed, the, the um, overrun of the Capitol, the way people were treated, the videos that have come out of Capitol Police opening those gates and letting people way past curfew stay on the streets of D.C., versus what many of the country may not have seen over um, you know, the summer in protests where uh, individuals who were out just slightly after um, you know, curfew were rounded up by, um, by 
metropolitan police department officers and treated so uh, violently and aggressively that they had to escape into a resident's home and stay there overnight um, shows the, the radical disparities that you're talking about. Look, let's just be blunt. If that had been black and brown faces on the steps of the Capitol yesterday or on Wednesday, you would have seen dead bodies there because the police would have responded with weapons and they would have responded with deadly force. That's what you would have seen if there had been black and brown faces there. And the fact that the white faces were treated so radically different is, it's like America is being forced to take a really long look in the mirror. And I really hope people see exactly who we are because this is sickening. And I, um, before we get to the fear thing, because I, I really wanna, I do wanna unpack that. Um, you know, when we talk about sort of the context of this, to like people storming the Capitol to do the ultimate sort of violent, you know, suppression of the vote. Um, Dale, you, and, and the ACLU's voting rights team have filed dozens and dozens of cases in 2020 alone to fight against voter suppression. Um, how do you view those cases uh, and the history of rampant voter suppression? Uh, and then sort of your thoughts about how this plays out in the context of what happened at the Capitol and, and you know, things that you might be concerned about going forward. When I talk about voter suppression, I always try to remind an audience that, you know, um, is aware of some of our darkest chapters in history um, with respect to the right to vote and the treatment of um, particularly voters of color in this country, um, that that history is long, right? And I think even people who are aware of the darkest moments um, sometimes are not as fully aware of the lack of unidirectionality with respect to voting rights. Here's what I mean by that. We're frequently told a narrative that, you know, voting rights at the founding were confined to a very small percentage of the population, propertied white men, like 6% maybe of the population. But slowly over time, it's just been sort of progressively expanding until we've gotten to where we are today. You know, from from thirty thousand feet, that's not wholly inaccurate, but it's 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 not it's not um, it commits an error of omission that I think is misleading. And the omission is this: that the right to vote has not expanded uniformly over the past two hundred and thirty years. There have been moments of democratic expansion in this country, and they are always met by the forces of reaction, which have contracted the right to vote. You know, Reconstruction was a time in which um, black men were elected to Congress. You know, um, people who just a few decades earlier, a few years earlier, had been property were now um, congressmen and senators. And that brief period of something close to democracy, right? Not, not for, for, for men anyway, right? Not for women, mm -hmm. but for men in the South. Um, was vanquished by redemption and followed by almost a century of black of, of black codes, um, Jim Crow, and disenfranchisement. Um, 
you know, the period after the passage of the 1965 Voting Rights Act saw another, you know, expansion of the franchise and participation that resulted in real change in the um, in representation at all levels of government, government, local, state, and federal. Nowhere near where we need to be as a country, but real, real change. And what we have witnessed over the last decade has been, I think, a reaction to that. Right. Um, in the 1990s and the 2000s, no one was talking about voter suppression. Right? We were talking about motor voter, uh, modernizing voter, uh, voting systems, um, getting rid of punch card um, machines that um, caused so many problems in the 2000 election, um, bringing our voting technology into the 21st century. But for the last 10 years, we have been fighting an onslaught against voting rights, unlike anything this country has seen in decades. And it's hard for me to watch the events of Wednesday. Um, and see them as anything but just another stage in that counter that that reactionary uh, 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 movement that we're seeing th in this country, a reaction to the electoral consequences of the demographic changes that this country is undergoing and the um, expansion of political activism amongst um, communities of color. I... I really love that explanation, Dale. Um, and, and it's really interesting, uh, this context, because when you think about DC and voting rights in the District of Columbia, one piece of history that a lot of people don't understand is that black men in the District of Columbia actually had voting rights before the rest of black men in this country. And it was because um, you know, there was upward mobility and actually Black men ascending to, you know, positions of power and leadership that the Congress at that time uh, revoked voting rights for residents of the District of Columbia. And all of this is part of the congressional record. All of this is part of the, the DC affiliates and the uh, ACLU's Voting Rights Project's testimony to Congress on supporting DC statehood. Um, but I think that elucidates that this fear of, uh, you know, black and, and other BIPOC uh, folks having power is real and the reaction to it um, and this fear. And so I'm wondering, Jeff, if you can, you know, answer, what is the fear here? I've been thinking about this a lot. And let me just say, Dale hit it right on the head. 1865, the Civil War ends, and Black folks had been in the starting blocks. And as soon as America said go, before the 15th Amendment, which gave Black men the right to vote, was even passed, there were 700,000 registered Black voters in the South. Dale talked about people in Congress and Senate. Black men held 2,000 elected positions by 1870. This is what the fear is based in. And the litigation that Dale and his project have done in case after case after case after case, you know, it's because we see things like mailboxes being removed from Black neighborhoods, so you can't mail in your vote voting places being taken down. So you've got to travel miles and miles to cast your vote. Lines that are hours long with people of color standing there waiting in the rain because they're saying you are not going to disenfranchise me. So 
he not only hit it on the head, but I think the work that Dale and his cohort have done to ensure that people get to vote is critical because that's what the fear is about. You want to know what's 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 the, the the incredible fear in Donald Trump's head? Stacey Abrams. It's black people voting. What do you think just happened in Georgia? A black minister from the Ebenezer Church is now a senator in the state of Georgia. And that is a horrific thing to people like Donald Trump. Here is the thing that I believe that's going on. If you are a lifeguard, one of the things that you are taught at the very beginning if there's somebody drowning and you're approaching them to help them, one of the first things you may want to do is to hit them in the face as hard as you can, because the person who can't swim will kill the lifeguard because they're so desperate and they're grappling and they're scraping and they're, and they're frantic. And what the lifeguard wants to say is just calm down, just relax, and I'll get you back to shore. Fear makes people desperate. The fear of white supremacists in this country is that they see their privilege falling apart and they think they're never going to get it back. How many times has Donald Trump said things like, if I lose, we'll never get this back, or if I lose, this is what's coming. When people are desperate, they behave desperately. Look at what Donald Trump has done over the past weeks since the election. Doesn't it smack of incredible desperation? When people who have lived and benefited from white supremacy see those structures falling apart, they see America getting browner and browner, they see Black people all over America organizing and voting in ways that haven't happened since the 60s when Dale was talking about the Voting Rights Act. When they see these things happening, they get desperate. These, and, and I will say this, I am not naive enough to say that we are on a firm road to destroy white supremacy in America. We are certainly in a moment where we are facing it head on and the white supremacists and the people who are comfortable with them. Let me make that clear. I can't say that everybody who voted for Donald Trump or who supports him is a white supremacist. I can say everybody who has voted for him or supported him is comfortable with Donald Trump being a white supremacist because there is no other tag that is that is accurate enough to describe him but that one. There is no dispute about that. And so when white supremacy sees itself falling apart, it gets desperate. What we are looking at in the minds of the white supremacists is the death of white supremacy. These are the death throes of white supremacy. And if that actually was happening, if America was actually starting on a road where white supremacy is going to be challenged and, and, and real serious efforts to deconstruct it, one thing I would say is, how could it look any different? What would you expect it to look like? Do you think they're just going to sit in their living rooms and say, okay, I guess our time is over? No, they're going to come out in desperation doing desperate things.
So I think this is just another indication of how important this moment is in American history. And if you have any sense as an American of what our country stands for, if you have any sense that America should not be a country guided by white supremacy and racial hatred, the time is now to get out of your chair and to do something. So on that, on that, I love the call to action and thinking about, you know, what comes next here? I mean, I, I think there there is a sort of forward looking when we get through this, like what comes next? Because we know, you know, the voting for the president and voting for our senators isn't the only voting we do in this country. Um, but additionally, you know, one of the things that that we do as the ACLU is hold the state and hold the government accountable. So what what does um you know, what does it look like going forward and what does accountability look like in the in this time? And either Jeff or Dale, if you have thoughts on this, can I'm going to ask Dale to go first on this. <laughs> this is hard. If I, I, I'm sorry, Monica, if I knew the answer to that question, <laughs> you know, it's obviously not easy. I mean, we are in a very, very, very challenging place as a country right now. Um, you know, I take some hope in a lot of um, recent events, um, but I'm also um, I'm really concerned by a, a, a lot of recent events as well, right? Um, you know, just to get to, you know, um, reflect on, I mean, this is not your question, but to reflect on something that Jeff was talking about earlier. I mean, Senator-elect Warnock, you know, he, he, he's been arrested in the Capitol, right, for protesting um, in, in peaceful prayer in the rotunda, right? And the disparity in treatment um, is, uh, I think, self-evident. Um, what, what, I, what I, you know, what, what I will say is that, um, you know, this isn't, and I think the elections show that this isn't the case. This isn't Donald Trump's country, right? Um, he keeps talking about the 70 for 75 million people who voted for him. And, you know, that's a lot of people, right? Um, 81 million people um, voted for the other candidate, right? Um, the, the, the people have spoken, right? Um, this election was perhaps the most scrutinized election in American history in terms of the irregularity and integrity of the votes, um, vote counting, casting and counting process. Um, and on January 20th, it'll be a new day. Any thoughts, Jeff? The work will, I think, be just beginning at that point. That, you know, Dale's got a hammer and he's hitting nails. The work is just beginning. And I think that, I think that is maybe one of the most succinct ways to sum it up. There is a new administration coming in. They're not perfect. They are going to have to be pushed on all kinds of things. And just in terms of what we're talking about with policing, you know, the president is saying, I want a commission on policing. And as our organization has made clear, we've had commissions on policing since 1919. And they have all said exactly the same thing. So I think we are at a moment 
where our leaders are going to have to be held accountable. And by and, and the only ones that are going to do that are us. And so as Congress starts thinking about legislation, we have to be prepared to make sure that that legislation actually has some connection to solving the problems that we're talking about. I've been saying this for the past several years. We are at a tipping point in America on all kinds of issues, but especially on issues of racial justice. And every single time America has come to a tipping point on racial justice, we have rolled back. And Dale gave you basically the places where it happened. When we formed the Constitution, we had a chance to break away from the incredibly horrific slavery that was going on in the, in, in the colonies. And the Constitution doubled down on white supremacy. At the end of the Civil War, as Dale said, Reconstruction was working. <clears throat> and once again, white supremacy doubled down and it rolled back. In 68, I'm 11 years old, and I'm thinking, my God, the Voting Rights Act, the Civil Rights Act, Martin Luther King is bringing us to a place that America has never been on racial justice. And then he gets shot in the neck, and it rolled back again, because next was Richard Nixon and the war on drugs. This is a tipping point. And if we roll back right now, I don't know what we're rolling back to. And so I think a call to be awake, a call to involve and educate yourself, that's what's necessary right now because America is up for grabs. And as Dale said, and I agree, this is not Donald Trump's America, but it could be if right thinking, and when I say right thinking, I mean good, moral, ethical th thinking people are prepared to step up. Jeff, I, this is really interesting, and I'd love your your sort of thoughts on this as, you know, saying white, white supremacy doubled down in these situations and seeing these images and videos that are coming out of police opening the gates on, on the, um, you know, steps of the Capitol and letting people flood the Capitol and the news that we're, you know, finding out that, uh, you know, our, our local... Uh, police chief here now in D.C. said, you know, we had no way of knowing when everyone could have seen that, that this was coming. And, you know, given the history of policing in America, additionally, the way I've been thinking about it is this is a government agency and any other government agency. So if you had, um, you know, teachers and teachers were wholly unprepared for teaching kids in schools, and they did that, then you would have the entire sort of government and public come together and say, there is something wrong with our education system. We need to do away with this, and we need to reconstruct. And you've seen that in like school choice and charters. Like, like we have the imagination to do this. Like, um, you know, what can you say anything about it? Am I on the right track? I think that we need to sort of address the 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 power here in the lines of, of how police, you know, sort of hold white supremacy and what we have to do in that very government agency. There's there's two things there that I think you touched on, Monica. And one is when most people think about policing, they think about what police do 
to black people and other people of color, how they used excessive force, what we saw on June 2nd with the Black Lives Matter protests. It's not just what police do, it's what they don't do. And what we saw on Wednesday, once again, it's meet the new boss, same as the old boss. This is what the police did in Tulsa, Oklahoma in 1921. They stepped aside and they let the crowd go in. And a massacre that's one of the worst in American history was the result. And those things were happening. There was the bloody summer of 1919. If you are interested, go and do some research and find out how many massacres of Black people were occurring in America at the turn of the 20th century. And nobody gets arrested for that. Think of all the lynching postcards that were going around America. People are standing there smiling in the picture, like the guy who went into Pelosi's office and is now smiling on the internet saying, yeah, it's me, because they knew that they would not be held accountable. They believed that they had the right to do what they did. So when I look at the, at, at the issues about policing, I think it's important, again, to focus on it's not just the over-policing or the extreme violent policing or the murder of Black people that is, is being concerned. It's what police don't do to protect our communities and to protect uh, people who are not in these positions of power. And so that dichotomy or that difference is, is something that I think it's important to remember and to keep in our heads. The last thing I want to say is, um, and, and you know, we have, we have put out information about this. There was a commission on policing in 1919 in Chicago when a young Black man was killed because the raft he was on in Lake Michigan went over the line and he was on the white side of the water. So white people threw rocks at him, knocked him off his raft, and he drowned. There was an uprising, and there was a commission. And what did they say? They said the same things that the commission said in 1935 after an uprising in Harlem. And they said the same things that a commission said in 1967 after Detroit, Michigan. And the exact same thing that a commission said in 1992 after the Rodney King incident and the uprisings in Los Angeles. So one of the things we can think about is, could we just learn from what our past has taught us so that we don't make the same mistakes? I, I think that is a beautiful, beautiful sort of way to, to close here is, um, you know, can we just learn? And, and thank you for um, both you, Dale, um, sort of elucidating a lot of stuff for us today, um, you know, and, and in the coming days, too, I also hope folks learn a lot. Um, I have seen uh, folks on Twitter talking about, like, maybe this is the need for D.C. statehood. Uh, we stand as the D.C. affiliate to help you learn more about why D.C. needs statehood. Um, and I am just so incredibly grateful for your time, Dale, and for your time, Jeff. We're all incredibly busy here at the ACLU, but we wanted to take a little bit of time to talk to you about these important events. And um, we stand strong in solidarity together. So thank you. Absolutely. Thank you. And good to see you, Dale. Good to see you. 
Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, please be sure to subscribe to At Liberty wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review the show. We so appreciate the feedback. Until next week, stay strong.